Hello, everyone. My name is Hoshina Saki, and this is the American Buddhist Study Center's podcast show. If you are a Buddhist or interested in learning about Buddhism and Japanese culture, this is a place. Today, our special guest is Professor Aaron Prophet with two F's and two T's. Aaron is a professor at SUNY's University of Albany's campus in New York in the East Asian Studies Department. For the last four months, he's graciously given his time to give lectures on the introduction to Buddhism over Zoom, which we put up on our American Buddhist Study Center's YouTube channel. He has an interesting background and is grounded in Buddhist philosophy and history. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you, Hoshina. It was a, a, really a pleasure to, to, to come on the, the, the podcast. Great. And, uh, and thank you for giving your time this morning for us. Um, so um, you really have a very interesting background. Uh, I know you're from Kentucky, and it's so strange how a Kentucky person <laughs> becomes a, uh, a Buddhist philosopher. Uh, or a Buddhist <laughs> person, sure. Sure. So, um, actually, um, uh, it's easy to get uh, Tennessee and Kentucky confused because um, uh, whiskey and bourbon are so kind of uh, you know important. Um, my hometown is actually uh, uh, Lynchburg, Tennessee, which is where Jack oh, Daniels sorry. comes from. And okay. there's uh, you know th there's some controversy over whether or not uh, you know Jack Daniels counts as a as a whiskey or a bourbon. It's it's an interesting conversation, but. Um, one of the things that I've loved about living in Japan is that people in Japan really like whiskey. And, uh, you know, I'm often in, you know, in these Buddhist studies contexts. And when I kind of introduce myself, the, the self-introduction, the Jiko Shokai, um, you know, I sometimes mention that I'm from where, you know, Jack Daniels whiskey comes from. And then suddenly we're not talking about Buddhism anymore. We're talking about, you know, uh, American whiskey. Um, a few years ago, while I was living in Kyoto, uh, there was a Japanese whiskey that won an international whiskey competition. And uh, it was really funny. My Facebook feed was full of people in Japan being very excited about winning the competition and people in Tennessee being bummed that they didn't win the competition. So in any case, yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. That's so interesting. Yeah. And sorry, you're from Tennessee, right? <laughs> there we go. <laughs> okay. All good. Yeah. Yeah. So, um. Um, yeah, uh, I grew up in, uh, uh, rural Tennessee, uh, which is not exactly a hotbed of Buddhist missionary activity, but somewhere along the line, I, uh, you know, got interested in Buddhism. I found a couple books and started reading and, you know, uh, just became, you know, a, you know, hobby and obsession. And then eventually I got to, you know, uh, study it for a living. Pretty cool. <laughs> Yeah, that is pretty cool. So how did you end up in Japan? I mean, how did that whole process? Uh, sure. Yeah. So, so um, you know, I've, you know, I've had a lot of time to, to think about this, because you know, it's a, it's a question that people often ask. Um, my students, you know, find me to be, you know, very exotic, you know, teaching up here in upstate New York, you know, like, you know, teaching about Buddhist philosophy, talking about Japan is, is one thing, but actually also being a Southerner, doing those things, uh, you know, they sometimes find that really funny. But um, so, uh, you know, as a child of the 80s, Japan was just kind of in the air, right? You know, you got Ninja Turtles and Karate Kid and all this other stuff. It's just, it's around, right? 
um, when I was when I was little, uh, you know, and also Middle Tennessee actually has a lot of uh, important business contracts with different Japanese companies. So, um, like uh, my one of my brother's best friends in elementary school was was a, an international student from Japan. Uh, one of my best friends growing up uh, uh, was also part Japanese. Um, so it was just you know kind of around like it was uh, not so foreign, not so different. In fact, you know, even my uh, my my father. Um, who was, uh, you know, been a furniture mover since he was, uh, you know, a teenager uh, and actually just recently retired. Um, you know, one time he decided to try making sushi, you know, and how he got that idea to make sushi, I don't know, but he tried it out and uh, it was not love at first sight <laughs> when I first had sushi. But, uh, mm -hmm. um, it, you know, later on, I, I came to really enjoy and appreciate it. But it was just kind of it was just kind of around, you know, it, it was in the culture, I guess. Um my uh, early environment was a, a little, let's say, chaotic and also hyper-religious. And it seemed that, uh, you know, uh, to me at, at a young age, that maybe one way to kind of understand the world would be to learn about other uh, religions. And, um, you know, one of the things that's kind of uh, difficult about my culture, you know, coming from the rural South, now, uh, you know, I will say that there are a lot of really important things about that culture that are very, you know, near and dear to me, uh, not just whiskey and barbecue, but, you know, care for your neighbor, you know, love thy neighbor type stuff. Um, but also there are other problems related to, you know, uh, racism and sexism and homophobia and uh, lots of other ways of excluding people. And one of the things that really attracted me to Buddhism very early on is this idea that the bodhisattva, uh, you know, the being on the path to awakening, the Bodhisattva vows to save all beings. No one is excluded, right? The whole idea of the Mahayana as the great vehicle that everybody rides on, uh, that seemed to be the inverse of this culture of exclusion. And I found that to be very powerful. You know, also the idea that through uh, self-cultivation, uh, you know, critical self-reflection and so on, one could see how the mind works and perhaps find better ways to approach life uh, and whatnot. Uh, th that was just very interesting to me very early on. Um, uh, so I, if I remember correctly, the first book I encountered was The Way of Zen by Alan Watts. And um, it was so different. It was so strange. I just loved it immediately and then had to read more. So then I started reading D.T. Suzuki and, and various other people. Um, by the time I graduated high school, I was deep into... Uh, beat literature, reading Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg and, uh, and and so on. In addition, and um, when I, you know, when I was getting close to graduating high school, my mom had remarried and moved to Colorado, and uh, you know, I'd heard about Naropa and I'd heard about you know the Beats hanging out in Boulder, and I thought that would be really cool. Um, and because she had already moved to Colorado, I technically qualified for in-state tuition. But also, more importantly, is that her her husband agreed to help pay for me to go to college. So suddenly I had this opportunity to go, you know, pursue higher education. And I thought, you know, mm -hmm. and the gui guidance counselor says, well, you know, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, I don't know. She says, well, what do you like to do? And I was like, you know, kind of the joke I tell is, you know, if, if I'm being honest, what I like to do is to skip class, smoke cigarettes, and read books about Buddhism. Is that a job? <laughs> and, uh, you know, sure enough, that that's kind of the job I have. You know, I quit smoking a long time ago, but, um, being able to just kind of delve deeply into these ideas and practices and learn about the history, culture, politics, and everything else just was just really exciting to me uh, very early on. Then I went to um, then I went to Boulder and uh, ended up at, going to school at, at University of Colorado, 
And I was introduced to the uh, historical, critical, academic study of Buddhism, which I found to be really interesting, uh, in part because it revealed that there were a lot of problems in the early transmission of knowledge about Buddhism. Uh, many of the scholars and interpreters of Buddhist culture in Western Europe and America um, invented their notion of Buddhism uh, often based on text. There's kind of an armchair anthropologist thing going on there, um, often tied into certain uh, orientalist stereotypes about Buddhist culture, and uh, often with very little input from actual living Buddhist culture. So um, kind of the school of Buddhist studies that I come from is not just about learning the classical texts and the philosophy and about meditation and whatnot, but also learning modern languages so that you can, you know, engage with the living culture as well. Um, so, you know, I showed up uh, freshman year uh, at my advisor's office and was like, hey, man, I want to study Zen, man. And, and this advisor looked at me, you know, tank top, dreadlocks, flip flops. And he could have said, get out of my office, hippie. But instead he said, OK, if you're serious, you need to learn Japanese and Chinese as well and, and so on. And I was like, OK, cool. So I started studying Japanese and uh, you know, along the way got really interested in, you know, the history of Japanese Buddhism because um, you know, in modern Japan, you know, as Japan modernized uh, very quickly, uh, scholars of Buddhism from Japan went to Europe, learned the European style of Buddhist studies scholarship, and then really influenced how many people around the world, you know, today still think about Buddhism. So I was really interested in kind of the, the modern interpretation of Buddhism coming from the Japanese side and the European side and kind of the, the effect that that had. Um, uh, during college, I, I ended up working on um, uh, Japanese Buddhism uh, leading up to and during World War II. I was very interested in how this religion of peace could also be, you know, at times tied with, you know, nationalism and things of that nature. Um, uh, people who are working on, uh, you know, Buddhism in Sri Lanka and Burma are, are also examining similar issues today. But then after, after college, um, you know, college was definitely an adjustment period to me. It took me a while to find the right balance between partying and studying. And by the end of college, I definitely kind of found that balance. Um, uh, so, so, you know, I didn't necessarily have the grades uh, to, to get scholarships to go study abroad and whatnot, but I applied to, for a job to be an English teacher. And after I graduated, I, I moved uh, to Japan. Um, when I was doing the, uh, um, you know, when I was doing the interview, they said, you know, where do you want to end up? I said, well, I want to end up somewhere where I won't have the luxury of speaking English because I really wanted to get good at Japanese. Um, and sure enough, they delivered. Uh, I was in rural Kumamoto, which is in southern Japan. And, uh, you know, not only did most of the people around me not speak English, uh, but they spoke a dialect of Japanese that I couldn't really understand. So it was a real challenge. And everybody can speak kind of the standard dialects. That's what you learn in school. But, you know, if two people from that part of Japan were speaking to each other. I really couldn't understand them. Um, in any case, so, uh, you know, I was working as an English teacher after college and, um, I got to know the owner of the sushi restaurant that was below my apartment. Uh, he and I became good buddies and we, we would hang out and, you know, he introduced me to his, his childhood friend who was a Jodo Shinshu Buddhist priest. And, uh, and I met him at this party where you know, everybody's drinking beer and smoking cigarettes and eating various kinds of fried animal bits. And I was like, wait, how does that work? You're a Buddhist priest, but you're hanging out with all these ruffians, me included, right? You know, <laughs> um, there were some interesting things about Southern Japanese culture that reminded me of my own culture. You know, people, are, you know, at times a little rough around the edges, fairly casual, like to drink, that sort of thing. And I was like, okay, like, you know, if, if these guys, you know, have a kind of Buddhism that works for them, 
maybe this can work for me too, you know. Um, there are a lot of great things about going to college in Boulder and learning about Buddhism in Boulder, but Boulder also had this kind of, you know, um, elitist culture about Buddhism that didn't quite fit for me. You know, coming from a working class rural southern background, that wasn't quite a, a good cultural fit, you might say. Mm -hmm. But the stuff that I saw in, you know, rural Japan, like just ordinary people living their lives, Buddhism's part of family, part of life, lots of good food involved. Um, it's like, hey, that this could actually kind of work for me. There's something about this, you know, culturally, philosophically, you know, it's for everybody. You know, again, kind of this cultural of culture of inclusion. Everyone's included, you know. And there are a lot of things about, you know, Jodo Shinshu in that regard. You know, the idea of, of the bombu, the foolish being, as being the the object of compassion uh, that I, I found very appealing uh, very quickly. Now, on the academic side of things, there's something else that occurred to me while I was living in Japan, and that's that. Um, you know, at that point in my life, I'd been voraciously reading books about Buddhism in English. But I got to Japan, I was like, wait, what's this Pure Land Buddhism stuff? How could I have been reading all these books about Buddhism and not know much about Pure Land Buddhism, which is perhaps the largest form of Buddhism in the world? Moreover, you know, learning all this stuff about Japanese religion and Japanese Buddhism, how could I have been doing this for so many years and not know about the largest school of Buddhism in Japan? My friends, my neighbors, my students are almost all Jodo Shinshu. And I realized that, you know, once I started learning about Pure Land, the learning about Jodo Shinshu, I realized that um, in the English speaking world, people are missing out on so much of the diversity of Buddhism. You know, you got our Zen breakfast cereal and corporate mindfulness retreats and this and that. But there's this whole other world. There are several other worlds, in fact, that are very interesting, very uh, nuanced and, and diverse. And you know, uh, deserve further attention. So on the academic side of things, I get very interested in thinking about the, uh, the, the diversity of Pure Land Buddhism, uh, the role that Jodo Shinshu has played, uh, you know, in the, in the you know, uh, development of Japanese Buddhism, Japanese culture. And uh, then I returned to the United States, got a master's in religious studies, and then, uh, and then applied for a PhD programs in Buddhist studies and uh, wound up at the University of Michigan. And just had a great time there. You know, I, you know, I'd, kind of along the way, I picked up enough Japanese to do some reading. But then I returned uh, to Japan uh, in 2010 um, to, to study Japanese intensively at uh, the Inter-University Center, uh, or IUC in Yokohama. Basically 12 months of intensive study. Uh, I got to where I could read, you know, academic articles comfortably. Um, picked up classical Chinese, uh, continue working on my classical Japanese and um, now I just get to read all these cool books and talk to excited undergraduates about it. Um, wow, you, you really have uh, <laughs> a very interesting uh, <laughs> introduction to Buddhism and uh, learning uh, Japanese and, and the various um, different sects of Buddhism and, yeah. discovering, uh, and discovering Shin Buddhism, which is the uh, largest practice uh, uh, form of Buddhism in Japan today, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, so I, I'm I'm uh, I'm at awe with with, uh, <laughs> with, your, with your drive and stamina in in, uh, in, in your in your pursuit of um, of Buddhism. And, well, uh, you, I can you know, I hear it in your voice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, the funny thing is, you know, I start off and I'm you know uh, you know paying money to take these classes, and then eventually they 
pay me money to, to, to take the classes. And they, you know, it's like, first I pay to take the classes and they start paying me to take the classes and now I'm being paid to teach the classes. It's just a fun, fun transition, I guess. Yeah, you know, I it, think so. And, uh, you know, really, I'm just having a lot of fun. This is, this is something that I just, you know, really gravitated towards. And, you know, um, you know, even though, even though some of these ideas, right, are, you know, emptiness and, you know, uh, you know, Tantra yeah. and so on, you know, these are, these can be fairly difficult concepts, but, you know, one of the things that I try to, to do in the classroom is to, you know, break things down into, you know, easy to understand terms and then kind of let my, I don't know, my enthusiasm, the fact that I'm just having fun, you know, um, kind of inspire students to also kind of take this stuff that can be a little difficult, but also turn into a thing that they can, you know, engage and, you know, and make fun as well. Yeah. 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 I think, I think that's really great. And, <laughs> and everything that you said to be like, like a whole different talk. And, <laughs> um, you know, and, and we're coming to, to the end of our session. Sure. So, sure. Um, uh, I really appreciate you being on with me this morning. Oh, thank and, you. Thank you. And, t and telling us about your background, yeah. which is so unique and so interesting. Um, I really like to hear more. But, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, for sure. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to end this podcast now. All so right. uh, thank you, Aaron, oh, thank for being you. a guest today. Um, and uh, if you want to learn more about the ABSC and get on our email newsletter list, please visit us at www.ambuddhist.org. So thank you all for listening. More good things are coming. Stay tuned. Bye.